Welcome to this first episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day affairs of politics and that affect our lives in a myriad of ways. We've brought together a range of people, including politicians, civil servants and scholars, to explore that interaction between constitution, politics and other aspects of life. Our subject today is constitutional thinking, establishing what we mean by constitution and constitutional, and considering how the nature of the United Kingdom constitution differs from that of other countries and affects broad issues of democracy. My name is John Hudson, and with me I have Caroline Humphreys, Director of the Institute of Legal and Constitutional Research at the University of St Andrews. Stephen Gethins, who has worked in the NGO sector, specialising in peacebuilding, arms control and democracy in the Caucasus and the Balkans regions. He's been an MP at Westminster and the Scottish National Party's front bench spokesman for international affairs in Europe. And Colin Kidd is Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrews and a frequent contributor to the New Statesman, London Review of Books and other august organs of the press. Uh, Caroline, can you give us some thoughts about what we mean by constitutional? What is a constitution? So when we talk about constitutionalism, what we are talking about is the idea that government should be limited in its powers and its authority. Usually in liberal democracies, this means some kind of legal limitation. And that means that the legitimacy, the accountability of government means holding political decision makers to account. So obviously, if political decision makers are going to be held to account by constitution, the constitution, that is the kind of the framework for how the government runs, um, what kinds of different branches of government, how they interact, that needs to be separate, either above or removed from everyday politics and partisan controversies. You talked about this being a, a modern uh, thing. Does that mean we can only talk about constitutions in the present day or surely other constitutions exist? So you're talking about a type of constitution or constitutionalism. Yeah, so the idea of constitutionalism, you could trace it all the way back to at least ancient Greece, if not to the ancient Hebrew Bible. In ancient Greece, a thinker named Aristotle, he argued that a constitution was simply living in accordance with the laws. So it was about how you mould your citizen body, what your citizen body, you know, what they should do, how they should behave, what duties they owe to politics and what duties politicians owe to them. So we, I think, in the modern world, in the West today, have a very kind of defined notion of what constitutionalism is. And that's often referred to as being the liberal democratic idea of constitutionalism. Colin. Yes, I could I, I could try and bring things d- d- down to us with a more homely um, analogy. I guess if, if we think of a of a, of a bowling club, um, there's there's a lot of ordinary business gets conducted. You know what what are the subscri- what's the subscription fee going to be for the current year? How how much shall we shall we um, pay pay the greenkeeper and so forth? But that that's as it were ordinary business. But Beneath that, there's the, un- the underpinning of the club is a is a, is a set of a set of club rules, and so that there's um, uh, some tension between, as it were, the conduct of ordinary business and, and and a framework that stops, say, the members deciding. Well, we'll just we'll just we'll just sell sell the um, 
the, the bowling club and divide the profits among ourselves or something like that. There's a, there's a constitution that's, as it were, um, it's, it's, it's that which distinguishes, as it were, um, simple majority rule from, as it were, a set of rails or guidelines that, that, that limits uh, a simple majority. So I think that's right, but there's also a flip side to that, isn't there, in that it's about the exercise of public power. So to a certain extent, constitutionalism is about how do you hold the decision makers, the politicians, the judges, etc. how do you hold them to account? So constitutionalism is also about ind the individual's civil rights as held against government. It's about free expression, you know, whether you can associate equality before the law, due process of the law. So I think there's an important kind of dual relationship there. It's not just about how do we get the framework um, together, it's also about how do we then hold those who are responsible for maintaining the framework to account. I mean, Colin talked about the, the club rules. Is, is there any easy way to tell a difference between a constitutional rule and a, another rule? Well, in, in the British, the British system, uh, there, there, there hasn't been until until very recently. Um, back back in the late nineteenth uh, century, um, the the jurist A. V. Dicey said that um, the, the the Act of Union between England and Scotland had no more uh, authority than um, he picked the most obscure measure he could find, and that was the Dentists Act of 1878. And he said that one had no more power than, than another. And up until very recently, there's been a notion of um, implied repeal, that whenever any uh, legislation comes on the book that has implications for what has gone before, then, then that, that, as it were, uh, led to the implied repeal of the previous legislation. But uh, in, a, in a case just at the, the start of this, this millennium, around about 2002, case of Thorburn versus uh, Sunderland City Council, which was the metric martyrs case, um, there was a, a distinction made between ordinary statutes where implied repeal took, took, took place and constitutional statutes, such as, for example, uh, the Act of Union or the European Communities uh, Act, where um, express repeal would be uh, required. So it's really only in the last 20 years that we've had um, a distinction made in, in, in British constitutional law between ordinary and constitutional statutes. Stephen? Yeah, no, and, and, and this is really interesting because coming to it from a, if, if, if you like, the practitioner point of view, and I've been listening to these points, and I think I, th I think they're really interesting. But what we've seen in the UK in recent years, say with the Brexit um, debate, for example, is that concept of what what are the rules stretched to the very limits. And Colin talked about earlier on talked about the bowling club analogy, which is fine. But most bowling clubs don't rely on rules that were made up 400 years ago for an entirely different set of circumstances, which led us, for example. Um, during the, the the Brexit debates to be relying on things like Henry VIII's powers as they were known, royal prerogatives, and to be thinking about um, the dissolution of parliament and what power counted for a royal prerogative and which one didn't because of what Henry VIII may or may not have done because he'd fallen out with the Pope, all incidentally before the Act of Union, which changed things all over again. So it's they're, they're right, but we are relying on a set of rules 
for an entirely different game, if you like. It's like trying to set the rules of um, Wimbledon, relying on how Henry VIII played real tennis back in the uh, <laughs> back in the day. And if, if you're going to adopt, if you're going to adopt the kind of critique of constitutionalism and liberal democracies, then of course you could say that's the whole point, right? That the point of a constitution is because it's the means through which the powerful in society lock in their dominance. So obviously that, for that extent, you don't want the constitution, you want it to be entrenched so that the people in power stay in power, or at least you know, a certain kind of band of people stay in power. So I think you know, we shouldn't also ignore the fact that there are a lot of critiques of constitutionalism as well in what we're talking about. Stephen, do you think that the historical element of the UK constitution uh, and the elements of the UK constitution is a major factor in the way in which things seem to be chaotic to an extent yes. politically, but also constitutionally? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you look at some of the the executive powers that exist that, that have been stretched beyond imagination in terms of some of the things that that, that that were done. And then you had the Prime Minister dissolving Parliament about six or seven months ago, a court case around that because nobody quite knew when a Parliament could be dissolved or not. And that strikes me in any democracy around the world as being something that's quite fundamental. And the fact that we weren't entirely sure of that um, is something that I think underpitches a, a real failure of the UK constitution. And if you look at the speed of change as well, that Colin talks about court cases 20 years ago, that 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 he talks in terms of that being quite a recent change. Well, that comes around about the same time as we had devolution coming in, which was a major constitutional upset to what had gone on before. But we still don't have that mechanism to figure out how devolution and the centre, if you like, um, at Westminster, interact with each other. Colin? Yes. Well, if I if if I could turn to another sporting analogy, um, most countries have constitutions that are, are a bit like baseball, where where there's that sort of set of clearly determined outcomes. The British constitution is a bit more like cricket, where as well as one team winning and another team losing, you could actually have a tie or a draw that is something totally different. So I think the British constitution is very open-ended. About a year ago, I was in the United States and um, people asked me as the uh, the Brexit saga uh, unfolded, they said, what's, what's going to happen? And I had trouble explaining to them that that's so open-ended and so um, rule, well, essentially rule-free, uh, the, Brit the British constitution uh, was that there were sort of a whole set of permutations that were, that were uh, possible um, here, that it's a very, very open-ended situation. Partly, uh, one of the problems we have is that we have a, a system that is notionally based on parliamentary sovereignty, and then along uh, came the referendum, which we, we didn't have any referendums in the UK until the 1970s. And the referendum has injected this other element, popular sovereignty, which is not the same as parliamentary sovereignty. And we also have a constitution that's in transition. And there were various things that, that brought it into transition. I mean, incremental, sometimes dramatic transitions, but ones that were obvious because they weren't all written down in one place, such as accession to the European communities, devolution, 
and uh, the Human Rights Act in, in the late 1990s. But I think above all, it's, 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 the, re it's the introduction of the referendum that more than anything has, has, caused, has caused chaos because it's just not been clear just what the limits are uh, to the referendum. Um, and, and so it's, it's introduced this chaotic element into, into our, as it were, non-system system. Colin, you talked about our um, constitution not written all in one place, and that is always one of the things used as the uh, a characterization of the UK constitution, that it is unwritten. You said unwritten in one place. Caroline, you used the word uncodified. Do you think, yeah. would you explain a bit more to us about the difference between uncodified and unwritten? Yes, well, so I, I, I think um, some people believe that, I mean, many, many people outside the UK believe that Britain, I mean, that some, some inside the UK too, believe that Britain doesn't have a constitution. Well, that's, that's not true. Some people believe that there isn't a written constitution. Well, it's, it's not all written down in one place. So most countries uh, in, in, in the world have some form of codified constitution where in in one particular place, the clear set of rules uh, governing the constitution that, that, that's set out. Now, um, when the chap that I mentioned earlier, A.V. Dicey, uh, tried to map the British constitution um, in, in the late 19th century, uh, actually what he found, and here I'll introduce another, another analogy, what he, what he found, it, it's rather like what cosmologists find when they look at the universe, but there's only so much, as it were, observable matter. What Dicey became aware of was that there was something beyond, um, as it were, a clear body of, of law, like statutes. What he, he, he discovered was a kind of dark matter, or if you want another analogy, grouting, that kind of filled in the, um, the, the constitution. So what we have in the UK is we have a set of laws made by parliament that are justiciable in the courts. But we also have two other elements uh, in, in the constitution which are much harder to define. And these two elements of dark matter are the legacy of royal prerogative powers, most of which, uh, but not all, most of which um, are no longer held by the queen but are um, uh, controlled by ministers of the crown. And in addition, we also have conventions which are non-legal rules. Uh, and um, the, the, these are very odd um, because they're not justiciable in the courts. And one of the conventions, for example, the Sewell Convention, which um, regards the relationship of the UK Parliament to the devolved um, bodies, that the Sewell Convention has now been set out in legislation, but the judges still don't think it's justiciable. Um, so it's, 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 it's very, very complex. And um, where does one find all these uh, conventions? Well, uh, again, one, one would look at legal and constitutional uh, authorities rather than uh, bodies of, of law. One has to know where to look. And I, to be honest, I'm not convinced that all the conventions uh, that govern the UK constitution are in fact known. I think there are still some, as it were, 
uh, if I can use a kind of a Romsfeldism, I, I suspect there are still a few uh, unknown unknowns um, uh, tucked, tucked away in the in the corners of the UK constitution. Thanks. I think it's important also to bring out the fact that England and indeed America too operate within a common law context. So, you know, that major difference that the, this idea in England and America that the protection of individual rights is better done by a continued process of judicial reasoning rather than by a codified written constitution. So I think that relationship between Parliament and the courts is absolutely crucial. And, you know, if we're going to argue in favour of this idea of a more, you know, um, kind of adaptive, reflexive sort of constitution that we have under this common law system, then the whole idea is that it's more adaptive to change and the principles are entrenched. But nonetheless, you know, we can react to events, albeit by the courts. And just to add with Dicey as well, I think one of Dicey's points about the constitutional convention, so those sort of non-legal rules, is that these can be made up by social rules that arise within the practices of the political community. So this whole idea, that means you've got the political players being responsible somehow for holding the political players to account and keeping them in check. So I think that there is a problem here with having an unwritten, uncodified constitution, precisely because of this idea of the constitutional conventions that you were talking about before, Colin. Yeah, I wouldn't want to interrupt Colin and Caroline on some of the, the theory around this, and I, I couldn't possibly compete with them on them. And, and Colin makes a very good point in terms of, um, it's all making sense now, the, the reason why I struggled to to understand the UK constitutional norms when I was in Parliament is, as he says, it's like cricket. Well, I still I still struggle to understand <laughs> rules of cricket, so that, that sounds about right. But, you know, why are we discussing this? Why does this count? And actually, sometimes mm -hmm. it's really important in what's been shown over the past few years. When Caroline and, and Colin were talking about some of these measures, and you talk about referendums that, that we've had only since the 1970s, why this matters is because when you have a referendum, say, on EU membership, and you don't have any rules around it, then who interprets what what popul the popular will is? And this is something we've just gone through. So actually, you can't hold anybody to account for what was said beforehand. And I remember trying to ask questions of ministers who'd been in vote leave, but I was told, no, you can only ask some questions in the role as ministers, which is fine because they're the rules that, that we've got. But it means that when it comes to interpreting referendum results, which is really important in terms of the food on your table, the energy and the petrol you're putting into your car and every aspect of our day to day lives, we don't really have rules around this. And that puts a huge strain on the norms that, if you like, have held the UK together by hook or by crook over the past few years, be it in the Good Friday Agreement, devolution, the social contract between citizen and politician, and it counts. And what's interesting listening to you about the United States, well, let's look at the United States because Donald Trump has been reasonably curtailed in what he wants to do because you have a set of rules between how the states and the federal government operate. You don't have that in the UK. So for example, the Sewell Convention as you pointed out, is just a convention. And the Sewell Convention, you know, didn't last the first whiff of gunpowder when it came to Parliament <laughs> when things were getting rushed through. So this stuff really matters and really makes a difference to people's day-to-day -day lives. It, it, is that an argument for 
a written constitution or codified constitution? It's it's absolutely an argument for a written and codified constitution. On on the EU referendum, and let's take that. That's relevant. That's 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 such a relevant area. You know, where did we protect the rules that were set out in the Good Friday Agreement? You know, if they'd been incorporated into a constitution to be protected, where does devolution sit and the popular mandate that's given to a Scottish or Welsh government or even to a local authority, how do we protect those? Because at the moment, there's only one mandate that really matters, and that's one that's given to um, a Westminster government once every four or five years. And right now, we're also in a situation that you might see quite dramatic change. A lot of observers think that um, with Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson, this is going to be quite a revolutionary government. That's what a lot of people observe from what's been written about in, in the past. And right now, there is nothing in a constitution to stop them from doing pretty much anything with that thumping majority. And the citizen won't have any say on that for another four years at least. I, yes, it's possible to wonder about this because, again, it all requires self-constraint. But if you look at how the uh, prorogation case worked, if you look carefully, I think, at the rhetoric of the arguments by the various parties... The government argues that these are constitutional conventions and therefore not justiciable by the courts because the definition of a constitutional convention is this. If you look at the um, Miller case or if you look at the judgment, what has previously been called a constitutional convention is called a legal principle. And so, legal principles, they are justiciable. So this sort of transition can happen. But what about, and I, I put this over to you because, as a, you know, and I'll, as you, John, Caroline and Colin, I kept on being told that the, the UK constitution and, and some people referred to the good chap principle, that, that, that actually we had these rules and everybody was expected to behave in a certain way. Now, what happens if somebody believes so strongly that what they're doing is the right thing to do politically that they think, well, the good chap principle is holding back what I'm doing because what I'm doing is for the... It's, it's, it's for the greater good. And what happens when actually you disagree on what the good chat principle is? And and I kept hearing about the good chat principle holding the whole things together. But again, when you reach the real tensions that we've seen in recent times, it's stretched beyond. And I'm not sure that that applies anymore, but I'd be really interested in what, what, what you all have to say. I think there are a set of principles that, 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 under, that do underlie uh, the, the UK's constitutional framework. Um, we've got parliamentary sovereignty, clearly, though possibly that's now modified by popular sovereignty in the case of a referendum. We also have adherence to, 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 to the rule of law. Uh, and I think possibly we also have a, a, a third one that, that, that governs much of political life, and that is um, one of ministerial uh, res responsibility that, that, in a way, holds governments together and also um, serves to insulate um, the civil service from, 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 from the political um, arena. Sometimes these, these uh, principles come in, 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 in tension, but um, there's been very little attention uh, given to these um, potential conflicts, partly because I think there's a, a coyness 
uh, that looks at the heart of uh, the British constitutional tradition. Uh, in, a, in effect, there's been a reluctance to, to define things that, as it were, the state itself is, is, is underdefined. There's been a kind of a pragmatic uh, trial and error uh, element here so that the issues are only confronted when they have to be confronted. And there's a reluctance to engage in, as it were, longer term uh, thinking ahead and planning and uh, trying to map out uh, the Constitution. Caroline, you wanted to add something? I was going to say that I think, you know, we need to pull out and think maybe even with a wider framework. So I think there are serious problems with the constitutional principles, these unspoken, unwritten principles, like the good chap principle, as Stephen says, because many of these principles were developed in the context of the British Empire. And as the Windrush scandal has shown us, you know, these leave out sectors of the British populations, you know, who are citizens and who should be guaranteed constitutional rights. So for that reason, you know, I think that we need a radical rethink of constitutional reform in the UK, not just this question of should it be written or should it be not, but literally the principles that we operate under, um, spoken or unspoken. Do you know, I think that's, 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 Caroline's hit the nail on the head there. I think we need, things have changed. And if, if you know, People kept saying the UK, you know, first of all, Brexiteers would say that we needed a referendum on the EU because the EU that we'd voted to um, to join back in the 1970s was not the same body and said the UK wasn't the same. Now, that works both ways. That also means that if you leave, you're leaving with the UK not being the same. You know, we're, the UK is not the UK of 1971, 1972. And, and, and as Caroline says, that the good chap principle, and I would have questioned that at any time of history, but particularly now, goes out the window. And since the 1970s, you've had the European Convention of Human Rights going into law, you've had devolution, you've had the Good Friday Agreement, and, and yet we're still sitting with an idea of parliamentary sovereignty and with um, um, with royal prerogative powers that that date back to, to be debates and discussions that were happening in the different constituent parts of the United Kingdom during the Reformation. It, it's not fit for purpose. Colin wants to add something. Well, I mean, I, I must confess that I've, I, I've moved on a bit, but um, until a few years ago, I was actually a defender of parliamentary uh, sovereignty and those uh, Dicean principles, I, I, I'll, and I'll tell you why. And it's it's, it's partly because um, when one looks across the Atlantic at the United States, one one sees a situation with a with a, with a written constitution and a constitutional court where the judiciary gets dragged uh, in, 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 into politics. Uh, and of course, that has that has now happened in the UK, but. Looking back a few years, I thought, well, actually, that was one of the virtues of the of, of what you might call this the UK's informal good chap principle uh, constitution is one it insulated the judiciary from from political life, and secondly, when parliamentary sovereignty was equivalent to uh, the will of the people. Uh, Without, without a referendum, as it were, intruding uh, in matters, it seemed it seemed like a useful um, 
equivalence. And so, so that I don't think there was a, uh, so much of a problem then uh, with, with, with parliamentary sovereignty. Um, and, and also it, it, what it did, lacking, lacking a, uh, a written constitution, what it gave uh, the UK government was a certain uh, nimbleness, uh, versatility, that, for example, um, the, the different governing actors in, 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 in the US uh, lacked. But I think what's, what's, what's been clear, certainly since 2016, is that is that that, con that set of constitutional arrangements has now totally broken down. And interestingly, I think it is in fact, it, it, it's, the, it's, it's politicians on the right more than anywhere else who have destroyed uh, the old club principle of which the British, in, in other words, the conservative principles of the British constitution have been wrecked by conservative or so-called conservative records. Uh, and so I've, I've personally moved on. I, I, I think I think we do now need some set of um, written 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 rules governing uh, our arrangements. They're not they're no longer fit for purpose. We we need to wrap up gradually now. But what I want to ask you each, and I think Colin has said his, if you could make one change to the UK constitution at the moment, what would it be? Colin, you would think that some degree of written constitution is needed. Well, I think I, I would say two things. One is legitimacy thresholds or, or rules governing referendums. And secondly, in recent years, it's become apparent that what, what was the old English or, if you like, greater English constitution is in fact the constitution of a multinational state. And I think some recognition of Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland now needs to be enshrined in a British constitution. David? So I'd actually, I think it's so fundamental, and I, I, I agree with Colin. I really, I, I agree with everything that, that, that Colin said there that needs to be changed. You know how you could do it, given it's been so long. One thing the, the EU did was, on the run-up to the Lisbon Treaty being put together, they put together a constitutional convention to try and come up okay. with a draft. And one thing that we failed to do after the EU referendum and in, if you like in the independence referendum was governments of the day failed to bring the different strands of the country whatever you count the country together from business academia different political parties different parts of the the uk it's something the eu has always been a lot better at codify the thing but have a constitutional convention that involves everybody first and caroline but I'm going to, I can't resist the temptation to go one further than Collins. I've got three things. <laughs> Firstly, I think, you know, if, you, if we are going to go for a new drafted written constitution, we need to think about race and we need to think about racial justice in new and different ways. Secondly, AI, you know, the effect, the challenges that AI is going to pose to the relationship between the citizen and government. And then thirdly, big multinational corporations and businesses, you know, where would they sit in a new, you know, rethought constitution? So I think those three issues, our, you know, hypothetical new constitution drafters are going to have to take very seriously and incorporate. We will return to all of these issues in future, uh, in particular thinking about how one might develop a different constitution for the UK or for its constituent parts. Uh, we've been talking a lot at this time about chaos over the last five years, 10 years, 20 years. Uh, obviously, we're in a situation which might well be described as one of emergency at the moment. And in our next episode, we will be looking at constitutions and emergencies.